Oh. Hey, before we start recording, should we take a minute and uh, get refreshments? <coughs> this being our... Whatever the virtues of the... <laughs> All our steps on the path of omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, my Jushri, please accomplish this. Whatever the virtues, the many virtues that may arise in the, on the clear mirror of intellect. Something like that, right? Two weeks and I'm like totally lost it. Eric, we have major buzzing tonight. Major. Cool. How's that? Okay. First, cheers. May may you uh, achieve shamatha. Sip of sunshine. Nastrovia. Every few months we get to drink on a Tuesday night. Special treat. Hey, so tonight we start on 96, I believe, of the book, the physical book, The Source of Appearances. You've been wondering, I've been wondering, what is the source of all these appearances? So we have this dialogue with Lakebourne Vajra, who says, Once limpid, clear consciousness has withdrawn into the central domain of pervasive empty space. What, spa what page are you on? Sorry. No problem. 96 on the bottom. Once limpid, clear consciousness has withdrawn into the central domain of pervasive, empty space, it has been directed inward. At that time, the mind and all appearances disappear as they completely dissolve into an ethically neutral, pervasive void. Through the power of self-grasping, the essential nature of this great, pervasive vacuity, the basis of phenomena, arises as the mind and its thoughts. This is certain, since space and luminosity are nothing other than the mind. The mind itself becomes self and others by the power of the contributing circumstances of its radiant clarity. Clear, huh? <laughs> well, that's a start. Having withdrawn from external space, away from the senses, limpid, clear, transparent, and luminous consciousness has come into itself. Come into itself. Consciousness, you know, turning the light around, turning the direction of consciousness normally outwardly facing, turning it on itself. Comes into itself. Uh, they, they come into itself. 
wait a second, help me withdraw it from external space away from senses. The senses, limpid, clear, transparent, and luminous consciousness has come into itself, come into the nature of the mind. It has been directed inward. This is what he means by directing awareness inward away from the sense fields, away perhaps even from the objects of mind, and right into the central domain of pervasive, empty space. At that point, the mind in all appearances, i.e. your psyche, disappears. Great disappearing act. Your mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness and all appearances dissolve into the substrate. The substrate consciousness isn't really empty. It's like an ocean of potential energy from which the kinetic energy, so to speak, of the appearances of the mind emerge. Only now you have withdrawn limpid, clear consciousness not only from the sense fields, which I might add are only seemingly external, but away from internal activities such as chit-chat, from images, away from all of the mind's contents or occupations, such that what you experience is empty and free of appearances. At that moment, your mind, your psyche, and he's talking about the conventional uh, mind of a sentient being in samsara, um, vanishes, has vanished. You have lost your mind insofar as the mind is something you designate on that vast array of mental processes that characterize the mind in action. With the mind now dormant, all that remains is the ground of the mind, the substrate consciousness, that from which the mind of ascension being emerges. At that time, the mind and all appearances disappear as they completely dissolve into an ethically neutral, pervasive void. That is precisely the substrate. So we have the substrate and the substrate consciousness. The term ethically neutral is the tip-off. Note that I've translated the Tibetan word tongpa, which is normally translated as emptiness or shunya in Sanskrit, here as void rather than empty so that the reader won't mistake it for emptiness. It's, it's uh, using the word emptiness in a sort of um, relative sense, absent of content, as opposed to without intrinsic identity or essence. Um, as awareness is withdrawn from the sense fields, they disappear, they go flat or dormant, leaving a void that is ethically neutral. In other words, it's not generating any karma of any type. Since that is the substrate, it is confirmed that what this guy named Great Boundless Emptiness has been building up to here is not Dzogchen, rather this has been an introduction to the practice of shamatha. It sounds very lofty and very advanced and very uh, wonderfully described, but it's shamatha, which is an amazing feat. Through the power of self-grasping, again referring not just to grasping on the, onto the personal self, but grasping onto the identity of any object. <clears throat> 
the essential nature of this great pervasive vacuity, the basis of phenomena, arises as the mind and its thoughts. So this is not the basis of reality as a whole, but this is the basis for the continuum of your reality, your experiences from lifetime to lifetime. What is it that arouses the substrate consciousness to take on the, the guise of a mind? Be it a human mind, or frog, or a devas, and the substrate consciousness itself doesn't belong to ex exclusively to any one class of sentient beings. It manifests for beings of all the six realms. So the same substrate consciousness of the continuum of a being in one lifetime can be a human, in the next lifetime can be a frog, and in the next lifetime a deva. Um, it is through the power of self-grasping. And that's what makes the substrate consciousness arise in the so-called guise or appearance of ascension being which in Tibetan is literally a mind possessor. It's the literal translation of the term sentient being in Tibetan. It is through the power of self-grasping that the substrate consciousness, the basis of all your experiences, manifests apparitions like a magician. And this is certain. So he's quoting and he's uh, interspersing commentary to the two quotes from the uh, text, the Vajra Essence. Since space and luminosity are nothing other than the mind, what uh, Great Boundless Emptiness here is stating here is even more astounding than the notion that the light of the sun is an expression of consciousness, which presumably he presented earlier on. That the light of the sun is an expression of consciousness. Here he's saying that luminosity and how even space are nothing other than the mind. That, that luminosity is the mind, space is the mind. Furthermore, the mind itself becomes self and other by the power of the contributing circumstance of its radiant clarity. So when uh, this tradition, Dzogchen tradition, and, and uh, similarly the Mahamudra tradition try to explain the so-called, like, uh, creation story or the fall from uh, wisdom into ignorance or the what in Buddhism the way we characterize it in Buddhism as a sort of moment-to-moment -moment, um, uh, repetition of ignorance of mistake of ignorance is uh, simply that quality of um, Is, is the quality of the radiant clarity. I was temporarily overwhelmed by the radiant clarity of my mind. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Spaced out for a moment there. Um, but the radiant clarity of the substrate consciousness overwhelms the ability to, uh, to recognize what's going on. And then we, uh, in uh, sort of desperation for finding ground, we, we grasp onto the substrate and that creates the guise of a sentient being. 
Let's see, as I mentioned earlier, grasping in and itself does not automatically imply reification. It is merely an act of identification. The mind reaches out and conceptually designates. Over there is Jane. No mental affliction or delusion is implied. Conventionally speaking, Jane, I don't know why he keeps talking about my wife, is there. She's not actually, but by way of self-grasping, in this case, grasping onto Jane's self, I'm provided with objects. Objects with attributes such as the color of Jane's hair, height, talents, personal history, and so on. How does something over there have all of these things? By the power of conceptual designation. Somebody designates Jane, and as soon as there is a designation upon a basis, in this case, the appearance of a body, we identify um, a person. What is it that enables there to be an attribute bearer, a part bearer, i.e. a body? Conceptual designation puts it all together. Um, so it's a little confusing, but it, it's like there's these two levels of uh, grasping. One is just the act of, uh, he says it's the act of identification which conceptually designates a phenomena as being this or that. And he doesn't say it here, pres presumably he said it earlier, but usually the other type of um, grasping is that grasping that it, uh, is portrayed by the three, what's called the three roots of attachment, aggression, and uh, uh, stupidity or ignorance. I have a question. C certainly. In the bardo, there's actual conceptual grasping? Uh, depends which bardo, though, right? Because, it, it, I mean, it sounds like, like we're retaining language. Well, if you meet ghosts, yeah, they, they still speak a language, right? They generally speak the language of their last lifetime. In, in the bardo? Well, yeah, they're ghosts. Ghosts are, ghosts are in the... In, uh, or have, have, have ghosts, like, no longer in the bardo? They take birth as a ghost? Yeah, I, I don't know. I've never met a ghost. Neither have I. But um, in the Barter, you're seeing all those lights, right? All those visions, peaceful, wrathful deities. And you, over and over again, we grasp to the dull version that's not intimidating, that's not challenging. Right. But, but uh, I find it, I don't know, it's, it's like we... We, you know, we've gone through this dissolution, as they describe in the, you know, in the in the Book of the Dead, you know, all the, you know, from, you know, earth to, you know, you know, the elements all dissolve, the, the 80, all, all the elements eighty-two conceptions dissolve. So, so I'm not sure how language survives that, and it, so um, to me, it seems like it's a non-conceptual grasping that we're doing. But but the thing is that after you go through all that dissolving, and then there's the bardo of dharmata, whether you see it or not, and then, see, assuming you miss that, then you start to reformulate. 
the, <laughs> you know, although you it's in the you have a Bardo body, you don't have a physical body yet, but um, you know things start to come back together again, right? To some extent. So, they say. so there's a yeah. So there's a gap there where there's you know in the clear light, however short or long that is, usually for for most sentient beings it's very quick. There is a gap in the grasping, but there's the underlying continuum of the substrate that has that karmic momentum to to uh, grasp, to resuscitate into grasping, and as soon as it sort of wakes up from that swoon, it, that waking up is the grasping. Right. Yeah. I, I, I get that. I, I'm just not sure that there's any, like, real, like, self-talk in English happening, you know, or whatever language. I mean, it just seems to me it's more of a, I don't know, elemental kind of, you know, fear or, or wanting or desire or, you know, sort of, I don't know. I mean, it's... I'm just sort of wondering that that I don't I don't I don't see a lot of it's hard for me to imagine conversations happening or self-talk, you know, <laughs> in the actual Bardo becoming or yeah or, 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 or dissolution either, you know, or, or you know, I mean, it just well, language dissolves in the dissolution, right? But but language is a very up a higher level a manifestation of grasping. But there's you know, I mean, I think there's still what I guess you would call conceptual activity going on in that, I mean, I think you're right. There's fear and all those other things could be happening. And this is, you know, as you go through these periods, it's when they tell you to try to recognize, you know, I mean, you're always supposed to be trying to recognize everything as your own projection, of course. And then, you know, that's also the opportunity to try to, you know, recollect your, your deities and various other things. So, you know, all of that prior training supposedly helps you to try to, <clears throat> relate with the experience that's arising in some way and presumably there's some kind of um, you know it may not be language consciousness but it's some kind of consciousness going on and then of course there's the period where you're supposed to be trying to steer yourself away from the bad rebirths and all that sort of thing so so there's a lot of that I mean a lot of that must be a you know on a conceptual level not just pure Um, purely sensory and all that, right? <clears throat> yeah, this is interesting because to, to me it seems like it's 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 a lot of conceptual overlay that keeps us from experiencing, you know, reality as it is on this plane, right? So in this bardo, right? In this particular bardo, it's it's you know it's it's, a, it's you know the self talk during our own movie that keeps us from truly experiencing. Uh, you know, a pure sense consciousness, right? Sure. You know, like we we don't taste our food half the time because we're also reading the newspaper or, or you know, watching TV at the same time. So thinking about dessert, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, so 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 now then that we're actually stripped of all of our senses, we're still conceptual. It's well, don't like, they don't they say that <laughs> while the the physical all of that physical stuff, you know, the elemental stuff dissolves but when you recreate this bardo body it's like there is still some kind of sensory experience happening but it doesn't have you know you don't have the physical organs and all that stuff to go with it it happens without that and i don't know if it's i i'm not sure if i've read that there's sort of crossover between the different sensory 
experiences. But anyway, there is there is some kind of sensory experience or what we what we would think of like sensory experience going on. Yeah, this is kind of fascinating. I mean, because we have no idea what, you know, or we, or we must have some idea. I don't know. I mean, we've forgotten, you know, it's happened and we've forgotten. Uh, right. You know, I don't remember dying uh, and being reborn. Um, over and over and over. Exactly. You know, so it's happened so many times. Um, but just this, this, just this idea of like, what is, what is retained and what's lost and and how, what form is, does this grasping take? I mean, I, 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 the only conceptual thing I have right here right now is that it's some sort of energetic situation. Uh, and, yeah, uh, and during that period of time, you know, as you get closer to the second half of the bardo of becoming and all that, then it's in terms of grasping, I think there's like this really strong, they say there is a very strong kind of momentum towards finding some ground, you know, getting a body, finding some, you know, getting away from this more ethereal right. that you're in. And so then that's why you become sort of almost compulsive about trying to go into the little caves or whatever they describe, you know, and, and you have to resist the ones that are not considered to be, you know, not the right realms that you, right, so, like, you know, I think that's all on a certain level, that's a form of grasping. Right. Well, like Trigam Trumpa says, you know, the bad news is you're falling and the good news is there's no ground. But I guess in this, the sense of falling makes us want to find some ground. Yeah, I think that's what they say. Anyway, that's what I, that's what I heard. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I could go on forever. I'm sorry. Well, next time when you're down there and you're in that cave, don't drink from the River Oblivion. And you'll remember <laughs> Don't grasp. Um, so let's skip to the next root text section, which is what, 104? We were just on 90. Their last one was 96. So the root text is in bold in, in set. The next one, the fruits of practice. This wasn't in our reading, but just let's just check out the root text as we go. In this chapter called Taking the Mind as the Path to Fruits. By taking the mind itself as the path, a person of superior faculties directly actualizes the nature of existence of suchness, ultimate reality, and realizes the consummation of samsara nirvana, achieving liberation in the absolute domain of pristine space. A person of average faculties achieve certainty in the formless realm and a person of inferior faculties experiences joy in the form realm. For a person of the lowest faculties, the path is experienced as happiness in the desire realm. And for people like myself, life is just an endless struggle. <laughs> Please, teacher, explain how this happens. So all these different uh, results based on people's predilection. Skipping to the explicit instructions on 109. And the, pre, the uh, lead-in is in asking the teacher to explain how this happens. Great boundless emptiness wants him to cut to the chase to explain how you can attain a deeper understanding of shamatha. Please explain how to take the mind as your path. As we shall see in the next few pages of the text, this simple practice gives rise to a very wide variety of results depending on the qualities of the mind. 
In other words, the degree of spiritual mature, maturation that you be, bring to your practice, the results are all quite good, um, including happiness within this desire realm, which we would all be quite happy with. He replied, O Vajra mine, first merge this mind with external space and remain in meditative equipoise for seven days. These are things that are not likely to happen in the near future. Then fix your attention on a stone, a stick, a physical representation of the Buddha, or a letter, and remain in meditative equipoise for seven days. Then imagine a clear, radiant, five-colored bindu at your heart. Fix your attention on it and remain in meditative equipoise for um, seven days. For some, this places the mind in a state of bliss, luminosity, and vacuity. This experience, devoid of thought like an ocean and moved by waves, is called quiescence with signs. So he's, he's continuing to describe fruitional states of extraordinary beings, it seems. On page 113, uh, 113 we have some psychophysical obstructions that may arise. Some cannot calm their thoughts because the mind is so agitated and they experience uncomfortable pains and maladies in the heart, the life force channel, and so on. Those with unstable minds with a wind constitution or with coarse minds may fall unconscious or slip into a trance. Such people should relax and let thoughts be as they are, continually observing them with unwavering mindfulness and careful introspection. So we're going to soon see a, a very long section on obstructions, but this is just the first of many possible uh, difficulties that progress on the path brings up. And on page 117, and you'll... You see, uh, this partly reading these little root verses is just to give us a sense of um, uh, the difficulty in understanding this text. It's not uh, a totally uh, linear presentation, so it's helpful to have this commentary. Stillness without thinking of anything is called stillness in the domain of the essential nature of the mind. The movement and appearances of various thoughts are called fluctuations. Not letting any thoughts go by unnoticed, but recognizing them with mindfulness and introspection is called awareness. So, identifying stillness without, which is the mind without thinking of anything, is called stillness in the domain of the essential nature, which again, re remember, is the samsaric nature of the mind, and the alaya vijnana. So identifying stillness, movements and appearances of various thoughts are called fluctuations, or movement, um, or uh, distractions. Not letting, letting any thoughts go by unnoticed, but recognizing them with mindfulness and introspection is called awareness. And with that explanation, come to know these these points. So this is like the framework for um, the Mahamudra approach to shamatha practice. Cynthia? In this context, is movement considered distraction? Um, 
only if you don't let them go by unnoticed. Right, because you, you, I mean, you mentioned inherent. it, and I thought that wouldn't be, it, it doesn't have, it's not inherent. No, you're right. I, I gave a negative gloss on it. Thank you. It's yeah, not just, inherent. I, we have such a tendency to do that. I think it's something that, you know, a trap that we fall into a lot. Yeah. Thank you very much. There's definitely a difference between the movements of the mind and how we re react to the movements of the mind. Thoughts in themselves are not a problem. It's being distracted by them. So thank you very much for that. And so when we're not distracted, when, we're, when we don't let any of them go by unnoticed but recognize them, each and every one, then it's awareness, non-distraction. And then on 118, settling the mind in its natural state, which is the second of the three phases of meditation, shamatha variety. First, there's settling the mind using a, an object of various types. And then there's settling the mind in its natural state. And again, natural state here means it's alia vijnana state. And then there's shamatha um, settling the mind in awareness itself, which is the bridge practice into Vipassana. Now to remain for a long time in the domain of the essential nature of the mind, I shall be watchful, observing motion, keeping my body straight and maintaining vigilant mindfulness. When you say this and also practice it, fluctuating thoughts do not cease. However, without getting lost in them as usual, mindful awareness ex exposes them. By applying yourself to this practice continuously at all times, both during and between meditation sessions, eventually all coarse, coarse and subtle thoughts will be calmed in the empty expanse of the essential nature of your mind. You will become still in an unfluctuating state in which you experience bliss like the warmth of a fire, luminosity like the dawn of the day, and non-conceptuality like an ocean unmoved by waves. Yearning for this and believing in it, you will not be able to bear being separated from it, and you will hold fast to it. So this is the achievement of shamatha, and the resulting experience of those three qualities of bliss, luminosity, and non-thought. And the general tendency to react to that experience by clinging to it because it's incredibly uh, powerful and compelling and positive. Let's see. Um, on the top of page 20, we have another root verse. If you get caught up in bliss, this will cast you into the desire realm. If you get caught in luminosity, this will propel you into the form realm. And if you get caught up in non-conceptuality, this will launch you to the peak of mundane existence. Um, Mount Everest, presumably. I think that's what he's talking about. The peak of existence, right? Therefore, understand that while these are indispensable signs of progress for individuals entering the path, it is a mistake to get caught up in them indefinitely. Indefinitely is a 
interesting way of characterizing it. I read an account of Jack Kornfeld, you know, when he went to Thailand and how he, he got into some really, really, really deep involved meditations where he, his mind was slowing down and he could see thoughts coming a mile away. And, and when he came back and reported this to his teacher, Ajahn Khan, Ajahn Khan just smiled and said, that's good. That's just one more thing for you to let go of. That seems to be a famous response that I've heard in, for many different stories of people having advanced meditative experiences <laughs> or semi-advanced, unusual, you know, unusually profound experiences. Uh, let's see, on the page 121, this is called... Sorry, that is called ordinary quiescence of the path, as opposed to uh, beyond the path. And if you achieve stability in it for a long time, you'll have achieved the critical feature of stability in your mind stream. However, know that among unrefined people in this degenerate era, very few appear to achieve more than fleeting stability. Nowadays, deities appear to some people who settle their attention on them. To some, visions of Buddha fields appear, and they stabilize and settle their minds on these. Some experience, especially experience bliss, luminosity, or non-conceptuality, and they settle on this. To others, images of their guru, rainbows, light, and bindus appear, so they settle on these, and so forth. Understand that due to the functioning of the channels and elements of each individual, not everyone's experience is the same. So many different types of, of experiences arise as one approaches the culmination of shamatha. Um, and he, he uh, refers to Tsongkhapa saying this, the same sentiment in the 15th century, and then Dujum Lingpa's contemporary Mipam Rimshe saying it in the 19th century. And uh, he also recounts in other places that we saw the Dalai Lama making the same comment in this 20th or 21st century. There what, numerous... what do they mean for Buddha fields? That's not Buddha nature. What, what are they referring to in Buddha fields? Oh, where the Buddhas Realm? live. Yeah, the realms of okay, the Buddha. So okay, yeah. the... Yeah. and Shambhala and... In places like that. Having achieved so his commentary, stability is described as a critical feature when, again, something indispensable. You cannot progress very far in the path without it. Um, uh, skipping, he says, uh, to illustrate and observe, there are hundreds of thousands of meditators in the United States and Europe. There are numerous Tibetan meditators inside and out of Tibet. Many of these are practicing Vajrayana, Tibetan tradition. They are meditating on Bodhicitta, Vapashna, Vajrayana, Mahamudra, and Dzogchen. Some of them immersing themselves in three-year retreats on the above topics. Many others engage in Vipassana retreats for weeks or months on end, while others devote themselves to extensive Zen sessions. How many of these practitioners have achieved shamatha? 
It's difficult to say, but since relatively few people are practicing shamatas described here, it seems likely that relatively few people are achieving the results described here. That's a little bit of an odd statement, but... Um, Uh, he says, most people do a little bit of shamatha and then think, let's go on to the next, let's go on to something more advanced, let's go on to Shtivapashna, or let's go on to Nundro, or Bodhicitta, or creation, completion stage, and Dzogchen. Um, in the next paragraph, he says, having said that, is it possible to achieve shamatha by way of the stage of generation? He says, yes, but how many actually do that? The shamatha part of the stage of generation comes when you're sitting quietly and stabilizing in pure vision and divine pride, which are two of the aspects of visualization practice in, in uh, development stage practice. In the Gaelic tradition, in three-year retreat, you spend almost all of your time doing mantras, hundreds of thousands of mantras. Will you achieve shamatha while doing a mantra? Not likely. It wasn't intended for that. It's a little bit of an odd statement, because other traditions say that uh, the Vajrayana way to achieve shamatha is through mantra practice. So, it's a good example of not taking everything completely as a, you know, that that you read as a hundred percent true in all circumstances, um, but he does say, and and we have heard people say that three year retreats are very busy. You're doing lots of different practices, but what is he implying that you're doing in in mantra practice? Is a very good question to think about. That maybe we'll come back to at some point. Of like, what are people doing in mantra practice if they're not doing shamatha. Um, on the next page, he says, uh, everybody would love to see these divine visions. And the next paragraph, he says, I know someone for whom bliss arises immediately when he sits down to meditate. <laughs> but he suppose he does? He likes to meditate <laughs> all the time. He likes that bliss. And, uh, you know, people have have visions and it's very enticing but it's not always this uh it's not always helpful thing it can it can be like what uh rob just related with uh, jack and his teacher achan shah signs of meditative experience on 124 nyam great boundless emptiness asked oh teacher bhagavan please explain how meditative experiences arise as a result of such practice. He, being the lake-born Vajra, replies, O Vajra of mind, awareness is nakedly revealed in all the tantras and transmissions and practical instructions of the past. Among them, I will not describe more than a mere fraction of the ways the signs of experience occur, because individual constitutions and faculties are unimaginably complex and their array of experiences is equally unimaginable. I know that there is no uniformity among them, so understand that I will speak only in the most general terms. So he's saying there's infinite number of people and there's infinite number of varieties of different ways of experiencing the arising of the signs of accomplishment or progress in the practice of shamatha. And what he's getting at is, as you make much deeper 
or as you make very deep progress in the path of shamatha, it causes all sorts of positive or negative things to arise. Illnesses, disturbances, positive things, visions, experiences, just all sorts of stuff comes up from the substrate. So on 125. Right. Didn't Trigam Trungpa describe the practice as like Roto Rooter? <laughs> John Baker has always quoted him as saying that meditation is not a um is not a, a relaxative. What is it? It's a laxative. And it flushes. Not a sedative. It. It's not a sedative, thank you. Not a sedative. It's a laxative. <laughs> the inter indeterminate, inconceivable range of experiences. And it's inexpressible. But teachers with great experience, proficiency in the explanations of the stages and paths and extrasensory perception, owing to the strength of their great wisdom, are knowledgeable and clear. Also, although vidyadaras from matured vidyadaras from vidyadaras with mastery over life, and there's different, there's four different stages of vidyadaras, might not have first-hand knowledge of all the ways experiences occur. They know them directly by means of extrasensory perception. So they might not have first-hand experience of them, but they know what other people are experiencing. Even without this, they can free others from their experiences by adapting and interpreting. The, their experience and their the instruction on how to relate to those experiences. So, in other words, he's he's saying that when these experiences occur, it's very helpful to seek out an experienced teacher. So, hey, Derek, much, yes, ma'am. Did you say something about different stages of the vidyadara? Yeah, did there's. I just throw it out. Yeah, there's four different levels of vidyadara in the Dzogchen tradition. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, maybe something related to Trung Rinpoche's title, or maybe not. You know, it's it's not his title doesn't mean he, that he's at any one of the particular stages of vidyadara, but uh, that he is a vidyadara, and it's un, unclear which of the four stages of that he's at. But you can find that fairly easily by googling those stages. So here's here we go started with uh, starting in with various types of these and this wasn't in the reading but I'll just read through the root verses for example Deva's Rishi's Psalm 126 the root verse root text Deva's Rishi's Brahmins Acharyas and so on who practice samadhi cultivated by focusing various seed syllables as a result whatever purpose these syllables had in meditation can be accomplished later by reciting them. Later, by reciting the syllables for whatever illness they focus on, they can benefit people. Likewise, vidyadars can intuitively identify all the illnesses, or by revealing techniques of meditation and recitation for that purpose, they can dispel all but a few diseases that are incurable due to past karma. This being the case, it goes without saying that they can guide a yogin's experiences on the path. So the importance of... Uh, referring to teachers when these experiences come up. On 128, if foolish teachers lacking any of these qualities, uh, given that uh, that he's just described the ability to understand all these experiences, um, 
give instruction to students and say that all these experiences will arise in the mind stream of a single individual, saying that everybody will experience all of them. They are deceiving both themselves and others, and the life force of their students will fall prey to the Mars. Why? Outer disturbances such as the magical display of gods and demons, inner disturbances including various physical illnesses, and secret disturbances of unpredictable experiences of joy and sorrow can all arise. Um, he doesn't fully answer his questionnaire, I think, of why, and I think uh, we'll see it more in the next paragraph. But what's interesting is his characterization of outer, inner, and secret disturbances. So we see this like in the Sadhana Mahamudra, we see outer, inner, and secret obstacles. And so outer disturbances are magical displays of gods and demons, which we don't really have much of in our society, what we call gods and demons, but we certainly have um, disturbances that other people would, of other uh, traditions would call gods and demons, things like pollution and wars and uh, tyrants and so on and so forth. I have, a, I have a demon I just picked up, and thanks to Chogum Trungpa, it's the Roto-Rooter Roto jingle that I can't get out of my head. Does anyone remember the jingle? Well, it's horrible. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I think Liz knows it. We'll come back to that jingle um, on 129 in the bottom. When, when giving instruction on the mind's nature, foolish, unintelligent teachers explain the causes for disturbing experiences. Yet, when they occur, such teachers do not recognize them as such and mistake them for illnesses. Then they compound this by blaming these experiences on demons. They think anxieties portend death, and they insist that their students resort to divinations, astrology, and medical treatments. Then if the students use see the faces of demons and malevolent beings, they may turn to various rituals and other countermeasures, but whatever they do turns out to be completely detrimental without bringing them an iota of benefit, and finally death is the only way out. Um, in this way, the teacher becomes a Mara for students as if he or she had given them a deadly poison. Ponder this point carefully and apply skillful means. This is a pretty heavy little section here where he says that uh, you have to be careful of teachers who don't really understand these things, who make a big deal out of them and, and do all sorts of rituals to, to deal with negative situations and uh, raise all sorts of alarm. Sort of odd thing to be talking about on 132 when meditation is introduced with special terminology such as insight and so forth there are many explanations of the stages of the path here on our own path mindfulness is presented as being like a cow herd with thoughts like cows their steady vivid manifestation without interruption by various expressions of hope fear joy and sorrow is called enmeshed mindfulness and so here he's referring to the first of what are called the, these four types of mindfulness in the Mahamudra and Dzogchen tradition. 
totally different from the four foundations of mindfulness in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta of the early tradition. But um, here he's describing the first type of mindfulness, enmeshed mindfulness, is where the mind is uh, very much enmeshed in the fabric of uh, thoughts and um, working with the uh, constant predilection for occupation. So uh, the commentary by uh, Alan Wallace says, um, enmeshed mindfulness means that you still have mental phenomena to engage work like a fireworks display. They appear luminously, clearly, vividly. In the gaps between them, you're not to inject expressions of gasping, such as hope, fear, joy, and sorrow. These emotional vacillations can very easily arise in response to nyam. You know, so like we have these intense emotional things arise while we practice shamatha. And he says, we don't take them as real, so we don't like get all upset. We don't have, uh, we don't gasp or um, other expressions. It's a grasp. Grasping, sorry, not to inject expressions of grasping, grasping them as, as real. Um, you may have an excellent session and think, oh, I'm, I'm finally getting this. I can, I think I can achieve this. And then your next session goes poorly and you say, nobody has ever been able to achieve shamatha. This is just a myth. Uh, let's see, skipping ahead to signs of progress. We all want to know what are the signs of progress. Give me some. Give me a. Show me a sign. Right. One thirty-four. Uh, in general, there are some of the signs of progress. These are some of the signs of progress for individuals who take appearances and awareness as the path. Yeah, I'm at that phase finally where I have to admit that I can't read close. Close up, small time. So here we go. Oh my God, I can see. Oh. <laughs> Very classy glasses. Okay, first we have the impression that all your thoughts are wrecking havoc in your body, speech, and mind. Like boulders rolling down in a steep mountain, crushing and destroying everything in their path. It's a little bit. Uh, over the top, but I think an indication that uh, he says if that is coming up for you, you're really on the right path. Be aware though that the list of nyam presented here is only a short, generic one. Not having had this experience doesn't mean you should say, "Oh shucks, I'm not on the right track." This sign is just one of innumerable potential signs of progress. So. Um, Uh, so he says, simply, can, uh, if you have the thought, sense that thoughts are crushing and destroying everything in the path of your body, speech, and mind, what should be your response? Simply continue practicing. Watch the boulders crashing. If you're not grasping onto them, you recognize that they're just images, just appearances. Here's another one. A sharp pain in your heart as a result of all your thoughts as if you had been pierced with the tip of a weapon. The ecstatic, blissful sense that mental stillness is pleasurable, but movement is painful. So I'm just going to skip the commentary and read the 
example, the perception that all of all phenomena is brilliantly colored particles. Intolerable pain throughout your body from the tips of the hair on your head down to the tips of your toenails. <laughs> the sense that even food and drink are harmful as a result of being tormented by a variety of the 404 types of identifiable complex disorders of the four major aspects of wind, bile, phlegm. What is the fourth one? Wind, bile, I don't know, and so on. It's only three. There's only three aspects. Okay. I wanted there to be four. An inexplicable sense of paranoia about meeting other people, visiting their homes, or being in town, being in groups of people. We know we know that one, right? Some people have that. Won't leave their house. Compulsive hope in medical treatment, divinations, and astrology. I think many of us have that hope in medical treatment. <laughs> uh, such unbearable misery that you think your heart will burst. Insomnia at night or fitful sleep like that of someone who's critically ill. A grief, sorry, grief and disorientation when you wake up like a camel that has lost its beloved calf. You know it, the way they are, camels, right? When they miscarriage, oh my God. The conviction that there is still some decisive understanding or knowledge you must have and yearning for it like a thirsty person longing for water. It's funny that they would talk about camels in Tibet. I guess they had camels in Tibet. The emergence one after another of all kinds of thoughts stemming from the mental afflictions of the five poisons. So on 138, so that you must pursue them as painful as this may be. Various speech impediments and respiratory ailments. All kinds of experiences can occur called experiences because all thoughts are expressions of the mind. Where all appearances of joys and sorrows are experienced as such and cannot be articulated, yet all experiences of joys and sorrows are simultaneously forgotten and vanish. That was confusing. All kinds of experience can occur, yet all experiences of joys and sorrows are simultaneously forgotten and vanished. So all this stuff comes up and then it like disappears. Then we have some more on page 140. He gives some commentary talking about things. The conviction that there is some special meaning in uh, every external sound you hear and form you see, thinking that must be a sign or an omen for me, and compulsively speculating about the chirping of birds and everything else you see and feel. The sensation of external sounds and voices of humans, dogs, birds, and so on, all piercing your heart like thorns, unbearable anger due to having paranoid thoughts that everyone is gossiping about you and disparaging you. Negative reactions when you hear and see others joking around and laughing, thinking they're making fun of you and retaliating verbally. Compulsive longing for others' happiness when you watch them due to your own experience of suffering. Fear and terror about weapons and even your own friends because your mind is filled with a constant stream of anxieties. Everything around you leading to all kinds of hopes and fears. Premonition of others who will come the next day when you get into bed at night. Uncontrollable fear, anger, obsessive attachment, and hatred when images arise, seeing others' faces, forms, minds, conversations, as well as demons, and so forth, preventing you from falling asleep. 
weeping out of reverence and devotion to your gurus, or out of your faith and devotion in the three jewels, your sense of renunciation and disillusionment with samsara, your heartfelt compassion for sentient beings, the vanishing of all your suffering, and the saturation of your mind with radiant clarity and ecstasy, like pristine space, although such radiant clarity may be preceded by rough experiences, the feeling that gods or demons are actually carrying away your heart, your head, limbs, and vital organs, leaving behind only a vapor trail, or merely having the sensation of this happening or experiencing it in a dream. Afterward, all your anguish vanishes and you experience a sense of ecstasy as if the sky had become free of clouds. In the midst of this, the four kinds of mindfulness and various pleasant and harsh sensations may occur. Spiritual friends who teach this path, prop path properly must know and realize that these experiences are not the same for everyone. So bear this in mind. Then he goes through another whole set that we can skip. Oh, no, just a little one. For a person with a fire, constitution, a sense of joy is prominent, and so on. Different. Uh, and then he says on 144, after all pleasant and harsh sensations have disappeared into the space of awareness by just letting thoughts be without having to do anything with them, all appearances lose their capacity to help or harm, and you can remain in that in this state. So how is that they all sound like psychosis? How is that progress? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's right. That's the question. Is this is progress? And yeah, the idea is it just uh, churns up all this, like it intensifies all this stuff that we keep in our Aliyavishnana. And by bringing it okay, up, so it's just saying it's a whole list. But your particular thing, whatever your obsession, psychosis, will pop up. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it may not uh, be. All of Five them, years, yeah. It might be a few of them, or it might be different. It might be something slightly different. You know, a lot of these are geared towards Tibetans. A lot of these ones and Westerners. You know, we would have things like my internet isn't working, or my my computer crashed, my car won't start, my boss, you know, does this or that, and you know, things I like that. Where, where no good. All sorts of things like that. So um, it releases like, them, brings them up. It releases them by bringing them up. It it sort of purifies, and it's a little bit like mantra practice. Sorry, Cynthia. No, that's all right. I sorry. I I, uh, I was just going to say that it's a sign that, in one sense, that you are engaged, you know, in the in the practice and path. It's sort of if you use the analogy of like doing exercise to accomplish some kind of physical strengthening. In the course of doing that, you know, you're going to have muscle pain or you're going to have this or that, you know, and that's a sign that you're doing something as opposed to not doing anything, right? If, if you weren't actually doing your exercises, you wouldn't have any experiences. So in that sense, I think in some ways, it's the reason why it's considered progress is it's, it's indicating there is engagement as opposed to you're not on, you're not really on the path at all. No pain, no guy. That makes sense because I've had that experience with the sharp pain in the heart. And then I just said, oh, okay. 
somebody just broke my heart. I'm okay. And it just slowly, my heart got stronger because I just worked with it. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. That makes sense. I mean, it's, it's a little tricky in trying to figure out, you know, when do I go to the doctor, you know, uh, in the context of this. Uh, but hey, you know, um, I mean, in other words, when do you interpret it as, oh, this is just a sign of my practice. Don't worry about it versus ah, maybe I should attend to this, you know. Yeah, that is that, that is a big question. And in the retreats that his talks in the retreats that I'm listening to, he says that when you when you think it might be like a, a real illness, you got to get it checked out and do the, the medical thing. Um, it's kind of a balancing not, act. Of yeah, and not ignore the possibility that it might actually be uh, some real illness manifesting in the body. But um, a lot of it just can be stuff that's brought up by the practice, these things. So like, this is all coming from the substrate? Yeah, it's like you're, so, you're, uh, they're maturing. You're maturing all these traces. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that like where the seventh consciousness is like also uh, our karma is coming and going from there at the same time, right? Yeah, that's the idea that the, you're ripening past karma and so, thereby liberating so, it. So in a sense, the practice then is speeding that, that ripening up a little bit. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's what they talk about that with prostrations, right? That was always the, you know, the, how it sort of starts to churn up all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So he says, accomplishing the practices after all pleasant and harsh sensations have disappeared into the space of awareness on 144. By just letting thoughts be without having to do anything with them, all appearances lose their capacity to help or harm. And you can remain in this state. And at the bottom of 145, finally, he says, you may also have an extraordinary sense of bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality, visions of God's demons, and a small degree of extrasensory perception. The channels and elements function differently from one person to the next, so those with dominant earth and air elements do not commonly experience extrasensory perception or visionary experiences. Extrasensory perception and vision are chiefly experienced by people with a prominent fire or water element, which is, explains why most of us have, have not had ex extrasensory perception and visions. <laughs> uh, let's skip to 170. And, and, you know, you have this book, it, it's sort of cool to look at the details of all this stuff, all these visions that occur. Anyway, um, 170. And, oh, sorry, actually, let's take a, a very quick look at 158. And this is in the pitfalls section, and uh, I know many of us have read or studied or heard texts or presentations on Mahamudra, and there's always a section on pitfalls and shamatha. 
in this phase consciousness comes to rest in its own state mindfulness emerges and because there is less clinging to experiences consciousness settles into its own natural unmodified state in this way you come to a state of naturally settled mindfulness which is uh, like one of the next of the four types of mindfulness this experience is soothing and gentle with clear limpid consciousness that is neither benefited nor harmed by thoughts and you experience a remarkable sense of stillness without needing to modify or reject or embrace everything but on 159 if you're not counseled by a good spiritual friend at this time you may think now an extraordinary unparalleled view and meditative state have arisen in my mind stream this is difficult to fathom and can be shared with no one after placing your trust and conviction in this without discussing it with any out with anyone you may delude yourself for a while even if you discuss your situation with a spiritual friend unless that person knows how to listen critically and responds in a persuasive fashion you will stray far from the path if you get stuck here for the rest of your life you will be tied down and present, prevented from transcending the realm of mundane existence therefore be careful <laughs> uh, you know this is a uh, clinging to uh, bliss luminosity or uh, non-thought and then he clarifies that further on 160 particular experience of clarity may result in vision of gods demons and uh, think you're suddenly being assaulted by demons etc etc so we don't have to go through all this detail but uh, amazing amount of uh, presentation of different very unusual experiences that happen and then uh, on page 168 to look at that briefly the role and significance of shamans so the bodhisattva great boundless emptiness says oh bhagawan is speaking to the lake born vajra if all experiences whether pleasant or rough are far from being the path to omniscience and bring no such benefit then why the hell do we meditate and uh, the bhagavan lake born vajra says oh vajra mind which is how he refers to uh, the bodhisattva great balance emptiness when individuals with coarse dysfunctional minds agitated by discursive thoughts enter this path by reducing the power of their compulsive thinking their minds become increasingly steady and they achieve unwavering stability on the other hand even if people identify conscious awareness but do not continue practicing they will succumb to the faults of spiritual sloth and distraction then even if they do practice due to absent-mindedness they will become lost in endless delusion in other words shamatha is essential even though it has all these possible potential pitfalls 70 170 sorry experiencing the substrate the mind which is like a cripple so why does he say the mind is a cripple have you heard this before the mind is like a cripple and the body is like a blind man because right? the mind has no ability to, to enact anything on its own because it's a mind <laughs> and the body has no ability to see or know anything because it's a body anyway the mind which is like a crisp cripple and vital energy which is like a blind wild stallion you know just has this wild energy that that without a mind directing it just like is all over the place 
um, these two are subdued by fastening them with the rope of meditative experience and firmly maintained attention. Once people of dull faculties have recognized the mind, they control it with the reins of mindfulness and introspection. Consequently, as a result of their experience in meditation, they have the sense that all subtle and coarse thoughts have vanished. Finally, they experience a state of unstructured consciousness, devoid of anything on which to meditate. Then when their awareness reaches the state of great non-meditation, their guru points this out so that they do not go astray. Um, so, he's focusing on the part of this paragraph that is a description of <coughs> experiencing shamatha, uh, experiencing the substrate consciousness by shamatha, by virtue of shamatha. And then he says, the, the next root verse on the bottom of 171 is, For this to occur, first you undergo great struggles in seeking the path. You take the movement of thoughts as the path, taking mind as the path, taking the movement of thought as the path, working with our obstacles, working with the object of our fixation, as well as the energy of fixation itself. And finally, when consciousness settles upon itself, this is identified as the path. When consciousness finally settles on itself, then the real path begins. Until unstructured awareness or consciousness of the path manifests and rests in itself. So until unstructured awareness or consciousness manifests. So up until that point, up until the point of having a stability of attention and strength of focus, our um, unstructured awareness does not manifest. We're completely engulfed with and involved in our conceptually structured, fabricated awareness. And only through the practice of shamatha of various, uh, potentially of various types, are we able to um, get to a point where unstructured awareness emerges. Uh, it's, it's actually there all the time, but it's finally um, evident. Because of the perturbations of your afflicted mind, therefore you must gradually go through rough experiences like the ones, all those ones, or some of those ones discussed. Great uh, Bodhisattva Great Boundless Emptiness asks on the bottom of that page, 172, O Bhagavan, are thoughts to be cleared away or not? <laughs> Seems like a very basic beginner level question for this part of the process, but uh, if they are, must consciousness emerge again after the mind has been purified? Teacher, please explain. The teacher, the Bhagavan, replies, O Vajra of mind, the rope of mindfulness and firmly maintained attention is dissolved by the power of meditative experiences. Sh shouldn't that be our dissolved, the rope of mindfulness and f firmly maintained attention? No, the rope is the subject, so it's is. Yeah, so it's the rope of mindfulness and the rope of firmly maintained attention. That rope is dissolved by the power of meditative experiences until finally the ordinary mind of an ordinary being disappears, as it were. We're no longer a sentient being. And um, 
Consequently, compulsive thinking subsides and roving thoughts vanish into the space of awareness. You then slip into the vacuity of a substrate in which self, others, and objects disappear by clinging to the experiences of vacuity and clarity while looking inward. The appearances of self, others, and objects vanish. This is the substrate consciousness. Some teachers say that the substrate to which you descend is freedom from conceptual elaboration or the one taste. And those are two very advanced stages of Maha, in the Mahamudra system. Freedom from conceptual elaboration is the second yoga of Mahamudra, simplicity. And one taste is the third yoga, one taste. But others say it is ethically neutral and not necessarily one thing or another. Whatever they call it, in truth, you have come to the essential samsaric nature of the mind. Um, so, the second paragraph of the commentary, the teacher replies that mindfulness and firmly maintained attention are dissolved by the power of meditative experiences until finally the ordinary mind of an ordinary being disappears as it was, as it were. Mindfulness, remember, is the faculty of continuous sustained attention upon a familiar object. Here, the rope of mindfulness suggests a subjective a subject over here and an object over there, held in place, tied down by mindfulness. However, when shamatas achieve the ordinary mind of the ordinary being disappears, as it were, into the substrate consciousness. The Sangha, the great 5th century Indian <coughs> Buddhist contemplative scholar, also said that mindfulness is released after achieving shamatha. And he's saying this because it's an odd way of describing what happens with the attainment of shamatha. Normally, we think of shamatha as capturing the mind. And here he's saying the mind is released. <coughs> you reach a point where the mindfulness that you were cultivating and sustaining previously becomes effortless and is released, leaving you simply present in the substrate consciousness. And this is the fourth stage of these, this uh, Vajrayana system of four mindfulness is this uh, released mindfulness. So you are no longer attending with mindfulness. You're no longer holding on to an object without forgetfulness. This happens by the power of meditative experiences, including all the nasty, <laughs> unpleasant ones, as well as the really beautiful ones. They serve to disentangle and break down the fabricated structure of your mind and bring it to the ground level. The meditative experiences serve to disentangle and break down the fabricated structure of your mind. Normally we spend a great deal of time being mentally afflicted, dominated by craving and hostility. Our home, our habitual resting place, is down in the swamp of afflictions. The accomplishment of shamatha reverses that. You will still be assaulted by mental afflictions once in a while, but you maintain yourself above that by sustaining a buoyant, supple state of consciousness that is highly resistant to being dominated by the imbalances of the mind. On rare occasions when you slip below, you keep it on springing back up. 
with shamatha, it's so easy to go up and it's so hard to go down. For example, when your heart opens to loving kindness, you may first bring to mind the dearest person in your whole life and next the person who's been the most difficult for you. And there's just no difference between them. You no longer need to make great effort to encompass your worst enemy within loving kindness equal to that directed to your closest friend. That's when the classifications of close friend, sorry, loved one, friend, neutral person, and people I don't like or people who don't like me, those artificial demarcations of sentient beings dissolve completely. The experience of loving kindness becomes boundless, opens up immeasurably that is spoken of as achieving shamatha in loving kindness. Once you've done that, why not achieve such equilibrium all over again in a compassion and then rest, and then in the rest of the four immeasurables, empathetic joy and equanimity. With shamatha as your platform, it becomes feasible to break down all of these barriers completely. There are many contemplative scholars within Tibetan Buddhism who say it's not possible to achieve bodhicitta, to become a bodhisattva such that your bodhicitta is utterly effortless and rises spontaneously without first accomplishing shamatha. You actually have to have shamatha in order to blossom as a bodhisattva because if you don't have it, then you have a dysfunctional mind. Due to an old habits, this dysfunctional mind is wobbling around between excitation and laxity, which is a poor basis for developing bodhicitta, something that's going to be with you from now until your enlightenment. So the sublime sanity of shamatha is the basis for Vipassana, for bodhicitta, for the stages of generation and completion, and for Mahamudra and Dzogchen. The, the meditative experiences, presumably, of shamatha then are enabling the ordinary mind of an ordinary being to disappear, to unravel and dissolve back into the substrate consciousness. Consequently, compulsive thinking dissolves, roving thoughts vanish into the space of awareness. Space of awareness refers to the space of the mind, the substrate. Notice he's not saying that you have to clear them away volitionally. He tells us that this happens naturally, effortlessly. You then slip into the vacuity of the substrate in which self, others, and objects disappear. I've chosen the word vacuity rather than emptiness because this shouldn't be mistaken for the realization that all phenomena lack inherent nature. It's just vacuous, in that sense, empty. There's nothing in it. The substrate is the alia. Substrate consciousness is the alia vishnana. I found that very helpful. <laughs> that... The uh, we talk about the Aliyah Vishnana, and that's that's uh, ground consciousness or Aliyah consciousness, and what Aliyah consciousness is conscious of is the ground. It's the Aliyah, the substrate. Um, when you slip into the substrate consciousness, what you're attending to, experiencing what what's appearing to your mind to your substrate consciousness is the substrate, the alia. The alia is a vacuity in which self, others, and objects disappear. There are no appearances except for an occasional bubble. <laughs> now that's an odd thing to say. Why should there be an occasional bubble? We'll, we'll skip that for now and come back to it in the next class. The substrate, the alia, is luminous but empty. Space of awareness, as we've seen, is the translation for the Sanskrit word datu. 
this is the Dzogchen version of Datu. You know, we saw Datu used in an unusual way in Rongzheng Dorje's writings. And here we have the Dzogchen version. Space of awareness. Datu does normally imply awareness. Datu normally is just space or realm. In this context, the space of awareness or Datu is none other than the substrate. That's the sheer vacuity to which you are attending. That's the space of the mind that is empty. Datu is certainly a tricky term having different meanings in different contexts. For example, Datu is often a contraction or you know, abbreviation of Dharma Datu, which I translate as the absolute space of phenomena. In the context of Dzogchen, however, Dharma Datu refers to the ultimate ground, the ground of all samsara and nirvana which is non-dual from primordial consciousness. If there are multiple possible universes plus nirvana, conventional reality, ultimate reality, the whole shebang, rikpa, is the ground of the whole, which is non-dual from the absolute space of phenomena, dharma dhatu. It is not just the ground from which the whole arises, it's the ground that is the one taste of them all, of samsara and nirvana. And he threw in this term rikpa, which is the Dzogchen term for pristine or primordial awareness. And uh, since he started off by saying space of awareness is Datu, then it makes sense to say that uh, pristine awareness is Dharma Datu as well. So the this whole is situation is awake. Awake. <laughs> that is, uh, let's see. It's the ground that is the one taste of them all of samsara and nirvana. That is definitely not true of the substrate. The substrate is not the ground of nirvana. It is the ground of samsara. So, so dharmadhatu is the ground of both, but the substrate is the ground of samsara, your own particular samsara. You can get to that space by withdrawing from the senses and from conceptualization by simplifying going into the cubbyhole of your substrate. Although that is not Rigpa, Dujum Lingpa says this experience of bliss, luminosity, and vacuity is indispensable on the path. We need to, have, to get to that point in our progress on the path. Um, we can postpone the achievement of shamatha as long as we like while venturing into far more esoteric meditations. But if we want to come to the culmination of the cultivation of bodhicitta vipassana generation completion in Dzogchen, sooner or later we need to focus single-pointedly on shamatha practice and carry through with it until our minds dissolve into the substrate consciousness as Dujum Lingpa describes. This may take months or even years of full-time shamatha practice and that calls for real sacrifice, but if we refuse to take up this challenge, all the other more advanced practices we explore are bound to hit a ceiling that we cannot transcend due to the imbalances of excitation and laxity that we have yet to overcome. So... Skipping to the end, the conclusion on the bottom of 177, deeper possibilities of shamatha. On the other hand, someone will, uh, someone with enthusiastic perseverance may recognize that this is not the authentic path. This is not the complete path. And by continuing to meditate, all such experiences tainted by clinging to a blankness, vacuity, and luminosity vanish into the space of awareness 
as if you were waking up subsequently outer the appearances are not impeded and the rope of inner mindfulness and firmly maintained attention is cut then you're not bound by the constraints of good meditation nor do you fall back to an ordinary state through pernicious ignorance um you're not uh you do not fall let's see you're not constrained by good meditation <laughs> That's me. I'm not constrained by good meditation. Uh, rather, ever-present, translucent, luminous consciousness shines through transcending the conventions of your meditation and conduct without dichotomizing self and object. So you can say this is consciousness and this is the object of consciousness. The primordial, self-originating mind is freed from clinging to experiences. So this is a little glimpse of like once you achieve shamatha, the possibility that it opens up of really achieving uh, the higher paths, which are just generally called the paths. A student with enthusiastic perseverance may recognize that this is not the authentic path, may even recognize this at an early stage. This is not the direct means for realizing Rigpa. On the other hand, it's essential part of that progression by continuing to meditate all those such experiences tainted by clinging to the substrate vanish into the space of awareness as if you're waking up he's showing that this practice has higher possibilities if you enter this practice with intelligence and zeal recognize the limitations of slipping into the substrate consciousness and see the problems of clinging to any of its signs these, those experiences vanish into the space of awareness. So even these three distinct qualities of the substrate, bliss, luminosity, non-thought, vanish as if you're waking up. Bear in mind the substrate consciousness is the dimension of awareness we enter when we fall into a deep, dreamless deep sleep. rather. Now you awaken from that luminous deep sleep, awaken from the substrate. Subsequently, outer appearances are not impeded as if they were in the substrate and the rope of inner mindfulness and firmly maintained attention is cut so there's no rope it's no longer a rope this idea that we need a rope that's holding us firmly into in place uh, like anchoring us in the bottom of our mind in the substrate consciousness docked there that whole idea of uh, having to have that situation dissolves and um, so there's no firmly maintained attention, no effortful striving with diligence. That rope is cut, that ship has sailed. Then you're not bound by the constraints of good meditation, nor do you fall back to ordinary state. Rather, um, translucent, ever-present luminous consciousness shines through transcending the conventions of view, meditation, and conduct without dichotomizing self and other, such that you can say this is consciousness and this is its object, the primordial self-originating mind is freed from clinging to experiences. So here we transcend shamatha and the substrate consciousness breaking through to pristine awareness. And he says, notice how smoothly and simply it can happen. <laughs> Just after going through all those nightmare experiences, this one is 
very simple. When you settle into spaciousness in which there is no cognition or reference to the attention, all phenomena become manifest. For the power of awareness is unimpeded. Thoughts merge with their objects, disappearing as they become non-dual with those objects, and they dissolve. Since not a single one has an objective reference, they are not thoughts of sentient beings. Instead, the mind is transformed into wisdom. The power of awareness is transformed and stability is achieved. I understand this to be like water that is clear of sediment. So he explains this by saying, when you settle into a spaciousness in which there's no cognition or reference of the attention, no signs, that is, you're no longer withdrawn into the substrate consciousness. All phenomena become manifest for the power of awareness unrepeated to be withdrawn from all appearances and simply dwell in a blank vacuity is relatively easy. You can even imagine it to be grasping onto signs and reifying them. We are certainly familiar with that. Rigpa, however, is inconceivable and ineffable, pristine wisdom. Dujan Blink was speaking here about there being no referent of attention, and yet all phenomena continue to manifest. The power of awareness is unimpeded. Awareness is not withdrawn into itself anymore as it is in the substrate. It is free. Thoughts merge with their objects. Here I think he's stretching language as far as it can go without snapping, disappearing as they become non-dual with those objects and they dissolve. Since not a single one of those thoughts has an objective reference, they are not thoughts of things like sentient beings. Instead, the mind is transformed into wisdom. The power of awareness is transformed and stability is achieved there. Understand this to be like water that is clear of sediment. And in conclusion, he says in this opening section, <laughs> this is the opening section of the Vajra Essence text, Tujum uh, Lingpur reveals the nature of mind shows us how to take our own minds with all our afflictions, obscurations as our path. Instead of taking something else, we deal with the problems um, as our path to realizing the relative ground state of awareness, the substrate conscious, the relative essential nature of the mind. And once the mind is dissolved into this blissful luminous vacuity, shows us how to break through our individuated mind streams and realize our true nature, pristine awareness that has never been tainted by any obscurations. He has made this path clear, accessible, inviting. Without the achievement of shamatha, none of our meditations will bring about irreversible transformation, liberation. Once we've settled our minds in the natural state, the entire path to great perfection lies before us. Expecting for us to realize their true nature in this very lifetime, there can be no greater adventure, no greater frontier to explore, and no greater freedom to realize than this great perfection, the one taste of samsara and nirvana. Phew. So that's it. Hopefully that was interesting, and hopefully it was helpful to you in your practice of shamatha, and hopefully it uh, inspires you to really focus on practicing shamatha and really getting good at shamatha practice, or at least to, to cultivate that intention, that, you know, sort of realizing how indispensable shamatha practice is. And, uh, you know, many of us have other practices that we have commitments to do, and there's this balance of how much shamatha and other things to do, but uh, it's really crucial to, to focus as much as you can on shamatha. And those of you that don't have other commitments in practice, that's great. Just go all out on shamatha. Do retreats, do solitary retreats on shamatha, and really try to uh, make some progress in it. 
Any thoughts, comments, questions, suggestions, announcements, anything at all? This definitely has transformed my experience of Shamatha. It's been really cool to incorporate some of his practices and suggestions and just his like enthusiasm <laughs> for it. I I feel I I really look forward to it now in a way that I didn't so much previously. So I'm very uh, grateful for this class cool. and this writing. Yeah. That's great. I'm also hoping that those of us that do the, the technique that Trump Rinpoche presented and we pass on that um, you know, we don't we don't teach to uh, beginners, and we don't teach initially this the progression of shamatha where it goes from being very um, definitely sort of dualistic in in terms of the rope of mindfulness and uh, tying your mind to the breath and um, working with thoughts by not getting caught by thoughts and having this sort of black and white situation of thoughts and non and mindfulness labeling thoughts as a way of saying goodbye to them um but but that he also presents over and over again in many different places the advancement of that progression of uh, then going into uh, this technique of not having to have this sense of getting away from thoughts and experiencing the sort of larger container of mindfulness and thoughts or stillness and movement as being one and the same. And so it, it seems very much to me, and, we, and uh, to some extent we went through this last year in that course on uh, Shamatha Vipassana, in, in, by Trungpa Rinpoche, using the text by John Mukongshul, that he goes through these these stages of shamatha, shamatha with an object, a concrete object, the breath, and then shamatha on the nature of the mind, by the way he presents panoramic awareness and, exp and, and expanding out from just the breath into the space, so that at some point he's, t he's basically saying space is the object of your shamatha. And space is uh, an, an analogy for mind, as we saw here and in many places, and in the instruction by Trung Rinpoche, mixing mind with space. So then space, and i.e. mind, becomes the object, that second type of shamatha, shamatha of settling the mind in its own state. And then finally he gives little glimmers here and there of shamatha on the... Uh, on the nature of awareness itself, but um, hopefully, hopefully that comes through more and more as we go through these texts. That Trump Rinpoche was basically presenting this this progression as well, without being explicit about it. Anyway, so sorry. I just was going to say I'm just finishing up Profound Treasury Volume Two at the same time, and I've been noticing a lot of the parallels you're talking about, which surprised me. Because on the surface, they seem like rather different presentations, like you're saying, but I'm now spotting a lot of crossover. Yeah, he's very subtle, you know. Yeah. It's like he's speaking on different levels all the time. And he'll put these little things in there, which if you're not, if you don't know them already, they just 
they don't register in any way. And it's so helpful to go back and read those a second time, uh, particularly after having gone through this material or material like this. Um, so should we take another week off? We had a week off last week. Should we take another week off before the next class or dive in? What do people feel like? I haven't really mapped out the course on the next book to see how many weeks it needs to go through, but it's not a very so long So take a course. week off. Yeah. Like take, take a week, a week off. off and chill out because you're very fancy and you're really good at making these courses, but you can good. relax. I, I was looking forward to that too. Okay. You can even take two weeks off. Ha ha. No, 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 no. Okay. Just sorry, one. sorry, sorry. I don't want to mess <laughs> everything. Yeah. Yes. So there you uh, go. that's the not too tight, not too loose balance right there, right? <laughs> yeah. So so that means starting on June fourteenth, which some people will be a profound treasure. Who's going to profound treasure? Anybody? Emily and Liz, who just left us. Well, we'll miss you. So Emily, we'll work out some way of me. Uh, You're not going to be there, Derek. No, I'm not going this year. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Because uh, Caitlin's not going, so I'm not going. <laughs> oh dear, because I think I told somebody you would be there. <laughs> Oops. Oh. That's all right. Now I have to try to remember who it was. They said they were going. And I said, "Oh yeah, you'll see Michelle and Derek." And I would. Yeah. yeah, it's the end of school. You know, all school teachers. You, Mary Beth, you still have like this is the the big mm. crescendo. So. Anyway, so that's the plan. It's uh, June 14, and uh, I'll circulate information as usual. So cheers. Thank you very much. Closing. Mm -hmm. Jane's like, what are you doing? Drinking beer? I thought you had a class tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Thank you. I saw uh, something that uh, Brent sent through to me, and then he's not here. He's he's on vacation as himself, but he sent through a, a gift. Thank you all very, very much for your generosity and for your uh, participation and attention, and especially for your contributions into the class. I really learn a lot and appreciate it, and love the ability, the opportunity to go through this material with you. So, thank you. Shall we dedicate? By this merit, may all obtain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's western bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Take Thank care. You. Thank you, Emily, Thank for tech-hosting us. Very, very Thank grateful. You. Thank, Thank you, guys. You, Bye, Derek. Be well. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Emily. Thank you.